Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe, Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European... Do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast with me, Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, then please join us at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. What a time to be alive. Are we in the last days of Rome or the last days of Watergate, the last days of Thatcher? Or are we just in the last days before Sue Gray's report partially clears Boris Johnson, leaving him battered but limping on over the bodies of the underlings that he'll sacrifice to save his own skin? Or are we merely in the last days of the DFS sale, a sale that we know never ends? Is a state of panic and crisis just the state that we're going to live in forever from now on? Is the five-letter wordle word of today going to be snafu? Situation normal, all fucked up. This week, I'm joined by the writer and broadcaster John T. Bloom to ask, would the end of Boris Johnson be the beginning of the end of Brexit? And we'll also be looking at a crisis for importers, which is happening right now. Just another Brexit bonus, as Westminster burns. But first, are you sitting comfortably? Because I'm going to read you a quick story. You'll like it. It's a spy one and everything. And the title is Boris Johnson is 007 in Now Time to Die. The clock was ticking down for Blonde. As he stood on the roof of Downing Street, he could hear the faint hum of the bombers approaching. He knew they were coming. He'd called the airstrike in himself, but he'd only expected the attack squadron to take out some faceless henchmen. Not to kill him. Not Blonde. But then it had all gone wrong for the man they co-named 007 Children. Bond was sent on a mission to Casino Royale, but after 25 minutes wandering around the tables, he had failed to realise that there was gambling going on. And had it been so wrong for him to drop in on a work event held by the mysterious charity Spectre in their hollowed-out volcano lair? Nobody told him it was illegal. And now, the final indignity, his paymasters were demanding the injection of nanobots into his bloodstream, which would mean that he could no longer have human contact with those he loved the best. The multimillionaire donors who could do up his flat will send him off to exotic locations and glamorous parties, no questions asked. He had protested that a new, politically correct blonde would be the end of the franchise, but to no avail. 
Didn't they remember the early days when his rollicky, devil-may-care style had eclipsed all those dull spies of old like Smiley Cameron? Surely the ordinary people still loved Blonde's outrageous adventures, going places they could never dream of going, doing things they could never dream of doing, saying things they could never dream of saying, thinking up ludicrous excuses they could never dream of dreaming up. Alas, his superiors said the data showed that people wanted him out. As the noise of the planes grew louder, Blonde thought back to the days when he had all the time in the world. The strange, deadly people he'd encountered, starting with Liam Fox, codenamed Dr. No Talent. Then there were the baddies with exotic names, like the genetically modified frogman Farage and the killer dwarf Francoise, also known as Le Chiffre Brains. Then there was Nadine Doris, nicknamed Oddjob, because everybody found it odd that Blonde had given her a job. Remember the time he'd outgunned the man with the golden Hancock? Or when he jumped out of that plane with the Queen, then made her sit on her own at the Olympic opening ceremony while he had a party upstairs? Would he ever see his colleagues again? The stuffy, upper-class, etiquette-obsessed gents who gave him his orders? He was co-named J.R.M. He could hear him droning on even now, Goldfinger is no danger, Blonde. He's always been a lightweight figure. And what of the boffin, Fuck Q, who had supplied Blonde with a range of fantastical vehicles? The explosive bus, the out-of-control shopping trolley, the incredible eye-testing car. Fuck Q communicated only in three-word slogans, like take back control, Brexit is forever, and get Blofeld done. But now something had changed, and the quartermaster's last messages to Blonde had read only... Read my blog and just fuck off. Curious. Finally, Blonde thought of the women. So many of them. Although these days you couldn't even say pussy galore without being called a sexist dinosaur by the woke snowflakes. In truth, it embarrassed him to admit he could barely remember some of their names. Thank God he'd now finally settled down at last with the one, the love of his life, the toothy blonde thingy, what's her name? He could hear the roar of the engines now. The planes, commanded by the unflappable Air Marshal Sue Gray, were almost upon him. What would happen if this was really it? Would he live twice? They'd bring him back in some form, he supposed, with a new face. Maybe he'd come back as a dispassionate, ruthless woman. Or a dispassionate, ruthless Asian. Or a dispassionate, ruthless Asian woman. But he, blonde, would be dead. He could see the plane straight ahead now. There were only moments to get away, and Blonde's eyes turned to the method by which he would once again escape certain doom at the very last second. It was a humble zip wire, stretching from the roof of Downing Street to its garden where he had set, made so many memories that he'd since had to pretend to forget. And from there, he'd be spirited away to lie low and level up until the next time Britain needed his special skills. Blonde laughed ruefully. He'd never had much luck with zip wires. And what was the point of carrying on if they wouldn't let him do exactly as he pleased, as he'd always been allowed to do from the start of his life to this point, which he now recognised would be its end? What was the point of being blonde if he couldn't be blonde? They were overhead now. Blonde had once resolved to live and let others die, and then to die another day, possibly tomorrow, although tomorrow never dies. But this was now time to die. The noise from above was almost deafening, but Blonde thought he could just make out the strains of Louis Armstrong singing from a faraway radio. 
he stared for the final time upon a glorious British afternoon and found a quantum of solace in whispering the words of the fatal email that had brought him here to the roof to face eternity. After what has been an incredibly busy period, we thought it would be nice to make the most of the lovely weather and have some socially distanced drinks in the number 10 garden this evening. Bring your own bombs. And as he uttered the last word, the explosions erupted around him and they finally wiped blonde from the face of the earth. And now I'm joined by the writer and broadcaster, John T. Blue. John T. is a former BBC business correspondent whose work for the New European has included incisive pieces on Britain's housing crisis, our broken apprenticeship scheme, and now, this week, the Brexit red tape that is threatening small businesses who import goods from the EU. John C., before we turn to this excellent and worrying piece that you've written for the New European this week, we, we can't argue the fact that we, you know, we might be in the last weeks, the last days, uh, maybe in the last hours of Boris Johnson's premiership. If he did go, what does that mean for Brexit? Is it in danger? Is it, is it dead even, as some optimists think? No, I think the optimists are being far too um, unrealistic. Uh, Brexit has happened. Um, there's, there's not much, you can't reverse it immediately, and I don't think actually you can reverse it anytime soon. But it also um, is a, a fact that whoever wants to be made the next leader of the Conservative Party, if there is going to be a next leader of the Conservative Party, will have to support Brexit because they need the vote and support of the ERG. So the, the European Research Group of ultra-Brexiteers basically control who gets to be um, Prime Minister. Uh, And so you will see whatever candidates might uh, emerge basically trying to out-Brexit each other, um, trying to be more ultra, to get the the votes of the 100-plus MPs who basically hold the balance of power in the Conservative Party. And obviously that would let in people like Priti Patel, Steve Baker, hardcore Brexiteers from the start, probably Rishi Sunak, who's the favourite, less hardcore before the referendum, very bullish about... Brexit now. Do you think it, the fact that Liz Truss was a Remain voter who was converted, do you think that counts against her? And, and is does Jeremy Hunt have no chance because he's a Remainer who remains Remain? Yeah, I don't think there's any chance for anybody who's seriously going to push for Remain or, or even actually for trying to negotiate much of a better relationship with the EU. It's, it's been reduced now to a kind of... Um, if you're not willing to cut off your nose to spite your face, you're not loyal to, loyal enough to the cause, which is which is utterly ri- ridiculous. I mean, it's true that Liz Truss's problem is that she was a Remainer, and you know, as in religion, the uh, as they say, the converts are always the worst because they feel as though they have to prove that they are a true convert and, and now a true believer in the cause. Um, and she's in the middle of, you know, trying to uh, negotiate changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's interesting that she's been considerably more conciliatory than uh, Lord Frost, um, who was leading the negotiations before, um, was. Uh, she's actually, you know, um, had nice meals and long chats with people and actually tried to be nice to them rather than threatening them. Um, but that's not the kind of thing that's going to win her the leadership. So I am actually worried that that either Johnson trying to stay in power or his successor trying to win the leadership of the Conservative Party would be willing to uh, campaign on immediately tearing up Article 6 or invoking Article 16 and therefore tearing up the Northern Ireland Protocol, which would in turn basically end the TCA, the, the wider trade deal 
with the EU that was negotiated, it would all end in tears. But if you want to be leader of the Conservative Party, you probably have to threaten these things and possibly even do them. And that would, of course, effectively mean a, a no-deal Brexit, wouldn't it? The tariffs coming in, and, and you could see certainly Pretty Patel, certainly Steve Baker, who are both, you know, fairly fairly outsiders, but fairly high in the uh, in the betting. You can you can see them uh, both doing that. It, it just just indulge a, a, a total fantasy for for a minute, and imagine that we had a, a sensible next prime minister never i mean put aside the the goal of rejoining what would be the practical steps that a sensible next prime minister would take to ease the pain uh, for british business that you've been writing about for us for so long now well actually i'm glad you asked because in my my own um blog jonty's jottings which is available on twitter i did i talked about this this morning i said there's no point in the labor party campaigning on rejoining not least because um, the Conservative Party would just promise to leave again. Um, and the electorate is absolutely fed up with Brexit. They just don't want to hear about it. They have lots of other things going on, like a energy crisis and a cost of living crisis and the NHS and COVID and all those kind of things. But there are lots of things that you could do to make the relationship far, far better. Um, for instance, you can just join all the agencies of the EU, which it's in your interest to join, rather than just being pathetically nationalistic about it so you'd make sure you're in the same all the research organizations and the space agencies and things like that and also there are some things that the government is trying to do and it keeps delaying it because they're just such a mess um which is really not worth the candle so it's setting up its own uk um certification system when everything in sale in the uk already complies to the European one. That's why everything has got a CE mark on it, which says you can buy and sell it anywhere in Europe and it's safe and reliable. There's no reason why you wouldn't just stop setting up your own completely identical um, certifications um, system and stay in the European one. Uh, you could do that. For chemicals, you could stay in REACH, which is the European chemicals regulator, which is very highly regarded and which the chemicals industry begged to stay in. And now the government has set up its own alternative, which has basically consisted of control C and control V and all the all the EU <laughs> regulations into, into almost literally into the into the British one, and then making everybody test everything again to join it, which is absolutely madness. Madness. So you would stay in things like that. The other one is animal and plant standards, which ours haven't diverged from the EU yet, and it's been five years since we voted for Brexit. There is not a cigarette paper between us. There is very, very little, if anything, to be gained by changing, except that uh, uh, if you don't belong to the EU system, then you have to comply with all the tests and the paperwork and the veterinary examinations and et cetera to move what you know complies with the EU standards into the EU. So that's absolutely point. Most of the, a lot of the red tape at the borders would disappear if you just agree to veterinary and, and plant standards. And so there's numerous things you could do like that. Um, you might have to pay a little money, a bit, a bit of money to the EU to get access to certain things. The other thing is um, equivalence for services, which didn't get any mention in the, in the deal negotiated really between the UK and the EU. And yet the UK is totally dependent on the services sector. So making sure that banks and insurance and accountancy and law and consultancies and all other things are are, um, are are able to do business in the EU without having to retest and reevaluate and employ Europeans instead of Brits 
And then the final one is, you know, the thing that's affecting musicians, which means they can't travel around Europe, also affects lots of companies. It's been hidden by the fact that COVID has stopped people traveling. But now lots of business people need to get individual visas to even attend a conference in another country in Europe. And you could sort, you could probably come to a deal on that with the EU that would, that would allow people to, to work in, in Europe for a day or a week or a month without really having to fill any, any forms in. And a lot of that would ameliorate so many of the problems we've seen and get, a, get rid of a lot of red tape. Because for all the talk of the Brexiteers wanting to slash red tape for British business, the red tape at the borders that they've imposed is tens of billions of pounds a year on top on top of every other cost that British uh, industry and services and everything have, they have just been given huge amounts of red tape to pay for and to employ people to fill in forms. I mean, the, the latest um, you know, job search figures say that the, um, the number one search term is customs officer. And I think the third one is shipping agent. We just didn't need any of these people before Brexit. And now we've got to employ them. So you could save huge amounts of costs and win the undying support of British industry um, if you were just sensible. Well, as, that is a tall order, as, as we know. And, and just, I mean, as, as, a, as a part of that, a Liz Truss premiership would certainly not look at these again, but, but would, would an, another Prime Minister want to look again at some of the trade deals we've been signing? Because while Tory MPs suddenly seem to be locating their spines, I see... Neil Hudson this morning, Dr. Neil Hudson, who's a Tory MP, saying, the, saying in the Commons, the Australian trade deal is one-sided in favour of Australia and it will undermine British farmers. And the New Zealand trade deal, from what I've seen, is even worse in that regard. Yes. I mean, it's perfectly obvious. And if you listen to the NFU, and Minette Batters is an excellent uh, diplomat for the farm industry, the president of the NFU, um, the farm industry has been sacrificed. Hmm. Um, it's patently obvious that um, they were lied to. They were told they were going to get more money. They've got less. They were told the small farmers were going to get more money. The money's going to the big farmers. And then these trade deals, which, you know, there is no way that the British farming industry can compete with Australian or New Zealand sheep or lamb, um, meat uh, or beef or corn or, you know, ma- many, many products, which will just be che- cheap. I mean, should be cheaper and the Conservatives keep going on about, oh, this means cheaper food in the shops. You'll hardly notice the difference in the shops, but the farmers will, and they will go out of business. And the kind of farmers that go out of business are, funny enough, the ones you want to keep on the land, the people who farm in peripheral and remote areas of the UK, uh, like, you know, Bodmin and the Welsh Hills and the Scottish Highlands and the Peak District and Northern Ireland, where you have terrible trouble keeping people on the land. Uh, and you need it to be uh, controlled and farmed properly and to stop floods and all kinds of problems. Uh, and if it just uh, isn't farmed, it, it just returns to scrubland. And that would be, a, it would be a disaster because tourism is also a huge factor in these areas. And if it just becomes unattractive scrub, nobody will go. Yeah. So, so all, the, all, all the people who were told that they were going to benefit immensely are exactly the ones who are being shafted. And it is perfectly clear that the reason for that is... Liz Truss was so desperate to get any deal that was new and not just a rollover of the existing ones we had as members of the EU, that she basically sold them out uh, in order to get a deal so that she could look good or the government could look good, I should say. And, uh, and that's what's happened. Uh, and if you keep signing deals like this, uh, it will be an increasing disaster because the people you're negotiating with know you're desperate.
and that is never a good position to be in. No, it's a terrible position to start for uh, start any negotiation, isn't it? Um, before we start on imports and, and in the interests of balance, have there been any pleasant surprises for British business from Brexit so far? Who who is doing well out of it? <laughs> well, the only people who are really doing well, out of it, it was quite interesting on TV. They had a um, an interview with someone who was massively in favour of Brexit and had been in industry so long that he said um, uh, that joining the EU had nearly destroyed his company and, and taken away 80% of its business. And they said, what do you do? And he said, I fill out customs forms. Um, so, yeah, you know, shipping um, experts in trade form filling, customs forms, regulations, uh, all that kind of stuff have done uh, fantastically well. Uh, people who train customs agents and shipping agents and so on. It was quite interesting the other day, there was a big thing about, um, I, think which, I can't remember which shipping port it was, in, a fishing port in Cornwall. Um, and it said its market had had a, a record year. Yes. And, and everyone went, my God, that's fantastic. Everyone said, you know, Brexit was going to be terrible. And it turned out it had a brilliant year because it took on the paperwork for all the fishermen <laughs> and did it itself. So all the fish was landed there rather than anywhere else because you could get your paperwork done for free. Um, that's that's not a that's not a triumph of Brexit. That's a you know that's a disaster. No, I can't think of any. I mean, there will be some firms that win business in the UK because European firms have just decided not to bother doing business in the UK. But uh, that then that will be a, a gain for those companies. But it is um, according to all the rules of economics bad for the country because um, they will be more expensive and less efficient. Um, because if they'd been cheaper and more efficient, they would have won the business anyway. Um, so uh, actually, that isn't really a net gain at all. So let's look at imports then. And, and I mean, there's a quite damning judgment at the top of this piece from, from Philip Rycroft. Who is Philip Rycroft? And what did he say that made your ears prick up? Uh, well, basically, he's, he used to be the permanent secretary at the Department for Exiting the EU. So he should really know what he's talking about. Uh, and what he said was, um, it's really for many firms in the EU who used to export to the UK, will decide that it's just not worth the hassle anymore to do it. Because the rules that have come in this year are basically the mirror image of the rules that came in for exports from the UK last year. So the EU, despite its reputation for being sclerotic and inefficient and bumbling and bureaucratic, actually put everything in place to, to organise Brexit on the day it actually happened. The British government asked for a year's deferment to do it on its side of the border. And, it's there and, kick, and it has actually kicked some of those rules and regulations even further down the road and hasn't introduced them this month. There's going to be some in July... Uh, and some even later than that. But basically, all those rules and that paperwork which you needed to sell British goods in the EU now has to be filled out by EU firms who want to sell in the UK. And it is quite damning when you consider that um, the UK is the fifth or possibly the sixth largest economy in the world, with about 66 million uh, people, a huge market, uh, and some European firms are just going to decide that all that red tape at the borders uh, and the trouble of doing business because of Brexit means that the game isn't worth a candle and they're just not going to bother supplying in the UK. Uh, and and that's really tells you everything you need to know about what's happening at the borders, because it, uh, you don't actually have to know all the details of the red tape and the, the new rules and regulations, only that there's enough of them to cause serious problems to EU firms uh, that used to sell 
into the UK and they're going to stop in exactly the same way as many, especially small and medium-sized enterprises in the UK, have just stopped doing business in the EU because it was just too complicated and expensive for them once you'd left the single market. And it's early days in all of this, isn't it? But already we've seen, you know, there are queues at Calais. We've seen uh, big firms like Honda struggling with paperwork and having stuff held up at the borders. And then obviously we're getting reports of small businesses who, who depend on exports from the EU or, or, or in bringing in goods from the EU. Delicatessens um, are, are struggling, aren't they? Because, as you say, the, uh, the, the paperwork that they have to do, the price increases that ha- they have to absorb because of the paperwork that's done at the other end uh, is just making it too difficult for them to, to bring stuff in. Yes, and, and, and one of the key points there, as you said, is, is the expense. You know, this is, this is form-filling for no good reason. It is registering at exorbitant cost. So you have to get a good, you have to be a member of the goods vehicle movement service. That costs you a thousand pounds a go. Um, you uh, have to fill in your forms and pay your taxes and your tariffs at the port now. Previously, you could just drive through and settle within six months and no one was really going to chase you. But if you get um, a problem, your, your lorry and your goods are stuck at the border now and until you pay the money or fill the format more correctly um, and then you can leave. And all these things were known about. They were seen coming a mile away. And yet we know from surveying companies, especially small and medium ones, that most of them didn't know about it and very few of them were prepared for it, about a third. Um, had made some effort to prepare for it. And it's also fair to say that the big companies, I mean, I've spoken to huge companies, car companies, and they said, you know, we're going to have to employ 20 people to do this. We're a multinational company. We can afford, afford 20 people. But if you're, a, if you're a medium or small-sized concern, you can't necessarily afford an extra person just to do pointless red tape uh, at huge expense. And if they get it wrong, you've still got problems. So uh, it's just, you know, it's just not worth it for, for many of these companies. And it's it's quite damning that the, the government um, couldn't come up with a better and more efficient way of doing this with less paperwork and less form filling and so on. It's supposed to have a computer system that does all of this automatically. No one really believes that's going to work first time. And, and so uh, companies especially are, are being left holding the baby. What's happening to exports in all this time then? Well, we, we, know, we know from two sources, basically, that ex- exports have been dramatically affected uh, in, the, in the first year since Brexit. And the, those two sources are basically looking at how much exports have fallen overall because of COVID, and then looking at how much exports to the EU have fallen. And it's, exports generally are down by about 15% which seems to be COVID-related, but to the EU, they're down 30%. So it's COVID again, on top of everything else. Brexit has caused about a 15% fall in exports to the EU already in one year, and we don't really expect that to get any better. That that figure has been checked because um, there is an academic study which basically has created an alternative UK made up, made up of countries which look like the UK economically and compared their export, exports to the EU with the UK's. So you have a kind of uh, uh, a benchmark to measure against. And they came up with almost exactly the same figure, 
that um, exports to the EU were down 30% and exports to everybody else were down about 15%. So we have the, um, we have the figures, we see how much worse it is in the EU, and then we have an academic study that says this is exactly what we would have expected to find. So it seems pretty certain that um, Brexit alone has damaged exports to the EU, which was our, by far our largest market, mm. by 15%. And services probably the same as well. So that was manufacturing goods. The work on services seems to suggest that they suffered just as badly. Boris Johnson and his defenders say that the economy is on the up and up, don't they? They say it's the fastest growing economy in the G7. We've created more jobs than anywhere else. Our business is bouncing back after the pandemic. That all can't be true if all this is true, can it? Well, it, it, well, it can in a sense. The reason the, the economy is bouncing back uh, more quickly than others is because it fell further. And so there was far more economic damage. Other countries had far better support systems in place for their industries. Uh, so the French economy only contracted by about 0.2%. I think ours uh, contracted by well over 1%. And so it's got a lot more catching up to do. It was always known that it was going to bounce back uh, because it had further to bounce. Uh, so claiming that this is a huge economic success is um, is rather dubious. And we also know that um, it would have bounced back even more strongly if it hadn't been for Brexit. So um, that has been a constraint. And if you look at the figures, the calculations, the original calculations by the Treasury and the OBR and several others about what was going to happen, there wasn't going to be negative. It wasn't going to be a recession caused by Brexit. It was just slower growth. Um, so if you kind of take out COVID, you know, the dip caused by COVID and the bounce back caused by COVID, you still have an underlying growth rate, which is really quite pathetic. Well under 2%, when over 2% used to be a good year. Now about 1.6% is a good year. And um, if Brexit takes about 0.2 or 0.3% off that growth, you're down to much nearer 1% growth. And that's nowhere near enough to pay for in the increased uh, tax revenues that the government needs um, to ensure that the economy is growing strongly and investing. The investment is still at terrible levels, uh, which is why the government's had to put up taxes. Uh, it hasn't got enough money coming in. Uh, why Rishi Sunak is still a Brexiteer is a bit beyond me, because the Treasury does prepare reports endlessly on what the economy is doing for the Chancellor's benefit. Uh, and they should be saying this. Uh, it's quite telling that they haven't actually published any of it because they would normally have published it, but they don't anymore. Um, presumably because it says exactly what we know is happening, that the economy is not growing as quickly as it should because of Brexit, that exports and imports are both being hit by Brexit, overseas investment into the UK, which is a lot of real long-term problem uh, and is a huge issue, is being affected and uh, not in a nice way. The one part of the UK which is doing relatively well is, of course, Northern Ireland, because it's still in the single market and has complete access to the UK as well. So it's in a absolute sweet spot. If you wanted to invest anywhere in Europe, Northern Ireland would be the obvious place. Um, and um, uh, the reason, one of the reasons I, we suspect that the government is quite so determined to wreck the Northern Ireland protocol is, is it gives the lie to Brexit because <laughs> st staying in the EU single market turns out to be rather a clever thing to do. And there was no reason we couldn't have stayed in the single market. Um, we could have left the customs union, stayed in the single market, um, and possibly had the best of both worlds. It wouldn't have been as good as full membership, but it wouldn't have been as bad as this. 
Well, what a gift if he does go, he's leaving for his successor. Thank you so much, John C. Bloom. To find out more about this new Brexit-inflicted crisis for British business, pick up a copy of this week's New European. If you want to read more from John C. or get full access to his archive, uh, please subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now, before the Hall of Shame, our usual reminder of something that isn't shameful. In fact, it's rather excellent. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast. Two seasons are available now. They tell the stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast is a superb listen. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And I also wanted to mention some of our listeners' suggestions for who might be the next Tory Prime Minister. A few comments from you all. Uh, Stephen Allport says, sadly, there is no Tory politician who would behave any differently to Johnson. We are in for more of the same, uh, pretty much echoing what uh, John C. Bloom said earlier there. Nick Schiller, friend of the podcast, says, no one on the front bench. What's the world come to when Jeremy Hunt seems like a good choice? Rupert Slade says, Hunt, Mordant or Tugendhat. Alison Briggs says, Jeremy Hunt, he's the best of a poor bunch. Linda and Paul Kiddy say, Jeremy Hunt, at least he has ministerial experience and he doesn't lie 50 times a day. A few more left field suggestions here. Uh, Chris Wilcox says, what about Vladimir Putin? He's uh, bought the Tory party, so why not step up to the plate? I suppose cutting out the middleman there. Hilary Foster says John Major could have another go. No longer an MP, so, you know, while he would be good, it's not going to happen. Margaret Bowden says Dominic Grieve, no longer an MP. Uh, not going to happen. Uh, he would be good. Fiona Dubois says Rory Stewart, no longer a Tory MP. Um, he would be good. Um, and Mark Jennings says Dracula, and I'm afraid I think uh, Dracula lost his seat too, I think, Mark, in the uh, Corbyn revolution. So the Prince of Darkness, no longer a Tory MP either. Uh, my favourite message of this week, though, comes from Stan Daniel, who I suspect is not one of our regular listeners on the New European podcast. He writes, after overseeing one of the most successful vaccine rollouts on the planet, what on earth makes you think Boris Johnson is going to resign? After coming through COVID and out the other side relatively unscathed, uh, it is now start, time to start getting down to business and utilising his 80-seat majority to the maximum of its full potential, to which I can only say, Stan, do you have a radio or TV you could turn on? And Maybe it'd be worth having a, a look at that or a listen to it. Uh, now it's time for a quick hall of shame where we put putrid pundits, pompous politicians and things that get my goat generally. Let us start by saying alack, egad, harumph, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner. And in her terrible column in the Terrible Daily Express, Anne Widdicombe writes this week, three cheers for Nadine Doris. And I think we'll leave that there. Oh, apart from to say that on one TV appearance this week, Anne Widdicombe said Boris Johnson was utterly chaotic and on another TV appearance, she said he was utterly chaotic and paying the price for his own failings. And in her Daily Express column, she writes, I am not a fan of Boris Johnson with his high taxes, high spend, restriction of civil liberties, disproportionate approach to climate change, betrayal of Afghan interpreters and vacillation over Northern Ireland. So what does Anne Widdicombe want to happen next? That's right. She says Boris Johnson must stay on.
Jacob Rees-Mogg is back in the Hall of Shame. He says David Davis was being too theatrical when he called for Boris Johnson to go, being called too theatrical there by a man dressed as a Victorian undertaker who drones on like a 1930s thespian and then lies on the Commons benches as if they were his personal chaise long. Nothing theatrical or performative about Jacob Rees-Mogg, of course. But foremost in the Hall of Shame is Michael Fabricant who's been fuming about Partygate, which he describes as a coup by the BBC. And now he's fuming about complaints from the senior backbencher, Will Ragg, who accused the whips and the number 10 and the spads of blackmail. Will Ragg said that MPs were facing pressure and intimidation for calling Boris Johnson to go. He said this included cutting threats of, to cut investment from constituencies and threats to release embarrassing stories about them. Uh, Ragg said... The police should get involved. And Michael Fabricant replied, what nonsense from WW. If I reported every time I'd been threatened by a whip, the police wouldn't have any time to conduct any other police work. Sure, saying the whips blackmail people all the time, including me, is the best defence to accusations that the whips are blackmailing people. But then I'm not sure that wearing that wig is the best defence uh, to Michael Fabricant being bored. But will his hero, Boris Johnson, be Prime Minister this time next week? Tune in to the next New European podcast to find out. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Root. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European podcast, please subscribe. And please give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. I'll tell you what else is a great podcast. It's Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available where you got this one. And if you like what we do, remember, subscribe to the New European at the New European .co.uk slash subscribe. Join our Facebook readers group. Follow us on Twitter at The New European. Follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, maybe with another Prime Minister. So long, snowflakes. <laughs>